This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be back. Um, I should say that much of this work was done in collaboration with Ray Jackendorf. So human language, I think, I think we know this, uh, evolved about 150,000 to 200,000 years ago, even though maybe I should talk back to Brona. It's species universal, so all babies learn it. And I don't think it's an ex- exaggeration to say that it has been crucial for the survival of our species. Now, looking through the many Carter events over the last few years, you've really had a lot of us, right? Like, you always have some linguists. It's really striking that you keep inviting us. Now, what, why is this, right? Like, what's so special about language? Well, part of the fascination is the question, how did language evolve? And the answer to this question depends actually a lot on what you think language is like. And this is tied to whether you think only humans have it. The answer to this question um, has been often formulated as, yes, um, language is a species-specific biological property. Um, But what is it that language actually has that other communication systems don't? I think it's useful to go back, you know, 60 years to search this answer for this question. Um, And it's often Hawkett's design features that are still taught to undergraduates today, and I think there's a good reason. James Hawkett was an American linguist. He got a lot of things wrong. Um, But his list of design features is still the most widely used yardstick to compare human versus non-human communication systems. And some of his core insights still stand, namely that many ordinary, like what we could call like ordinary non-linguistic cognitive skills involved in language are present in other lower species and other human cognitive capacities like vision or social cognition. And every single communication system has at least some of those ordinary 13 design features shown here, but he claimed that only human language has a full repertoire of those, three, of those 13 features, and three of them are really extraordinary and unique to our species, namely displacement, productivity, and duality of patterning. So let's take a little closer look. The last feature, duality of patterning, has received comparatively little attention from the linguists, but it's a real big problem for comparative research. Duality of patterning means that distinct meanings are formed by meaningless sounds. So m and e and t, they don't mean anything by themselves, but if you lump them together, they make meat or they make team, right? So they can give you access to different concepts, meaningful units. However, there's a really crucial problem in comparative research, namely, what does it mean to be a distinct sound for another species or a distinct unit? If we found the right units, would we find duality of patterning in other species? And Hockett himself was not so sure about the uniqueness of that duality of patterning. He was thinking about, for instance, the honeybee swaggle dance. And now we know, and we've heard before, that many species, including bees, communicate through, say, pheromones, right? Um, And octopus, if you think octopus communication happens often through changing body patterns um, and and posture and and, uh, texture of the skin. 
So you have all of, all of a sudden you're faced with a completely different problem of segmentation. Now, in recent years, the question of segmentation has been tackled again using artificial intelligence. Um, for instance, here is an automatic classification of the calls of killer whales. And the hope is that machine learning can detect patterns that humans are just not sensitive to, that they wouldn't pay attention with. So it's really all but clear how to you know, judge it or address this criterion in other species. But recent technological advances are helping to gain ground in our understanding where the duality of patterning really is ordinary or unique to us. The second species-specific feature, according to Hockett, is the feature of displacement. And displacement refers to the fact that we can talk about things that we don't see, right? Like things that are not here, not now. And that's very much unlike other species communication systems. Bees maybe are a prominent exception. But usually we think that non-human animals refer to things that are just here and that are just now, right? So when I say, I don't know, like Pascal, right? Then you can all look to Pascal who's right here. And so me yelling Pascal is to direct your attention is the same system that say vervet monkeys use who have different alarm calls depending on which predator is approaching. And while there is some evidence that in comprehension, other animals' calls have referential properties. That is, when I hear a call that usually is associated with a snake, I am looking on the ground to see whether there is a snake. They, we, as far as we don't know, animals don't really use these calls to, say, communicate their desires or their memories. They don't say, oh, I hope I don't see a tiger today, or I hope that I, the snake last week was really dangerous. Um, there are some rare exceptions which I'm happy to discuss on, you know, your little cards. But humans actually do this all the time, right? Right now I'm talking about things that you cannot see. And when I go back to Vienna, I might talk to, to my colleagues about Pascal, right? And I can refer to him in his absence. So human language allows us to convey meanings beyond the here and now, meanings that are abstract and meanings that are non-perceptual. Now, the last criterion you might have heard about a lot, right? Productivity is the human capacity to reuse our limited set of symbols to express an infinite number of meanings that are, in contrast to other species' repertoires, um, not limited to certain domains, right? I can talk about different things other than like food or mating. Um, so they're open-ended, as uh, Michael Abib calls, calls them. In modern linguistics, productivity has been often narrowed to syntactic recursion. And it's a widely accepted claim that this is uniquely human, evolved through a major discrete leap forward in evolution. For instance, in a 2002 science paper, Mark Hauser et al. said, minor modifications to this foundational system seem inadequate to explain the big difference between human communication and all known forms of animal communication. So what this means is that human language really hinges on syntactic recursion, which has as a consequence that something is either a language, right, or it's not a language, or a species has language or has no language. And this is a, a real problem when you deal with languages that have little or no recursion at all, like Piraha or Rio Indonesian. But still, recursion became a really important 
goalpost, so maybe the, the, the most important goalpost, to decide whether language was species-specific species or not. And as you can imagine, lots of people went out to see whether other animals have recursion in countless species, and some have claimed that animals really can never learn true recursive structures. There are some claims to the contrary. But why is this so important? Well, I'm arguing that the criterion of syntactic recursion being so central is rooted in the idea that what makes you and me understand language is syntactic composition. So here you see a model, a widespread model of how language acquisition, uh, language comprehension works. And basically the meaning of a sentence like the guy drank the wine is read from the syntax, how those little words are built together. And what this means is that syntax really provides the only machinery that puts words in relationships with each other. And that's why syntactic recursion is so central to this model, because without it, we cannot get to meaning relationships between words, and without it, we cannot utter anything that's more than one word, right? However, an alternative view is that, like with many other things in biology and evolution and cognition, is that language is actually a very complex system that integrates cues from multiple sources. For instance, on the very bottom, this is a representation of the sentence, the little stars beside the big star. On the very bottom, you see a representation of spatial structure. And all of these representations are linked together in order to jointly arrive at a gestalt of the meaning of this sentence. What this also means is that you don't need necessarily syntax to get from sound to meaning, because any word already is a mini-grammar. It's already an interface rule that maps a sound to a meaning. So this rule that you see here that goes from phonology or syntax, like basically from the sound side to the semantics, the meaning side, would, this rule would represent the one-unit grammar of, say, a non-human primate that can perceive and that can have thoughts and that can act also on the basis of those thoughts because it integrates with other representations, but it cannot communicate those thoughts in any rich fashion. And in modern human language, we have utterances that work like this all the time. There are certain words that mean just what they mean, right? Like if I say hello, if I just point out a star, or if when I yell Pascal in this room. Of course, most human linguistic utterances don't work like this, right? In order to understand, for instance, your baby's one-word utterance, we need an ordinary ingredient, namely social cognition, the capacity to understand what the baby actually wants to tell you. Um, for instance, if your baby says dog, there are many intended meanings. There could be, it could mean there is a dog, I want a, a, a dog, I want to pet the dog. And all this stuff in green is your brain trying to fill in the gaps, right? So this is enriched interpretation. And crucially, we humans, we have a possible displaced interpretation too, right? If your baby says dog, it might also just mean that your baby was, wants to express that he was scared of the dog yesterday, a dog that is in the memory. And again, we have situations like this in everyday modern language uh, all the time. So if you ask your kid in the morning, milk, right? Your kid knows that what you want to say, oh, hello, my darling, would you like some milk in your cup? Right? This is, this is what we do all the time. And even in longer embedded contexts, we need this enriched interpretation to arrive 
at the intended meaning. So if somebody tells me the mustache is waiting for you, I don't think that there's an actual mustache waiting for me, right? Like I think that there's a guy with a mustache waiting for me and then I can decide what I want to do. Um, so in this view, it is our social cognition that enables us to not only get from a sound to a meaning, but also from a sound to a rich, structured, and sophisticated meaning. Now you'll say, this doesn't really get us to productivity, right? No, but it's a foundational step towards productivity if we go back to the or original definition, right? A capacity to string meanings together through sounds and relate those meanings to each other. Now, I don't think anyone would deny or doubt that animals, non-human animals, have the capacity to string sounds together. I mentioned before that many species have very complex calls, whether they're recursive or not, maybe not even relevant, right? And recently, there was a paper that came out only a few months ago that argued for combinatorial calls by chimps. So what you see on the y-axis is how much chimps reacted to a certain call, and the call on the, the, the large one on the very right, um, where the chimps reacted very much, were call combinations. Now, what the relationships of those multi-unit calls is, however, is quite open because the chimps, they face a problem. They need to know how to relate those calls together. So what, they, what chimps need, and humans need too, right, is our combinatorial interface rules on the meaning level. So how the meanings of the single, single units relate to each other. For instance, to understand your toddler's two-word utterances, dog, mummy, the two words can enter different meaning, meaning relationships. One can be an argument of the other, right, like mummy's dog. One can modify the other, like a mother of dogs. Or it can, they can both be arguments of something that's not even expressed, right? Like maybe the intended meaning is the dog likes mommy, or mommy likes the dog. And we find this everywhere in modern language too. So if you think about English noun, noun compounds, union member uh, is an example of a function argument schema. Snowman versus garbage man are both compounds, but in one case, the modification is that snowman is a man made out of snow, but garbage man is not a man made out of garbage. Um, seahorses are animals that live in the sea and they look like horses, but they're neither, right? Like they're not, so you, you, I, I think you see what I'm getting at. And what's important is to notice is that we need this between all kinds of levels of linguistic representation. This doesn't stop at words. We need to also relate utterances to each other. So if I say, you break my Legos, I break your Legos, you know exactly what I mean, but it's not expressed actually in the syntax. So this mechanism of combinatorial interface rules scales up to many unit grammars, what we call linear grammars, and we are not at the syntactic levels yet. So once we have semantic combinatoriality, there's very little, except perhaps a weak working memory, that holds us back from stringing more than two units together to form linear grammars. And toddlers, as you know, do that very soon after they enter the two-word stage. But linear grammars pose a completely different problem, right? Because you have to decide which way to combine the units and which units to combine. Is the dog big or is the horse big when I hear dog big horse? Now, some modern languages seem to extensively rely on linear grammars. For instance, Riau Indonesian. 
So here there's an utterance um, that means this can also. It's a random example from a paper. And the context was that people were playing a video game and somebody um, discovered that one of the keys does exactly the thing that another key also did. So you can get from this very unsophisticated string of, uh, of words at least three interpretations, namely Either you interpret it as this one can too, so this key can also do this. It's basically a, um, an action based on, a, on an agent. The second one is you can use this in a, as an instrument to do the same thing, so it's an instrumentative meaning. Or this one enables you to do that other thing. Right. So what I'm saying is that we rely, or this language doesn't have ways to mark the differences as we would in English. And from what we know, it seems like Riau Indonesian has no or little recursion at all, and instead it relies on interpretative strategies that, again, we find everywhere in all languages that we've ever looked at. Namely, for instance, to interpret the first noun or the first referent that you hear as the agent of an utterance, that you uh, place the focus in the sentence last and the topic first, there's some variation about that. Um, that states were, are described before events, and so on and so on. So what's really interesting about this is that we really don't know whether anything like these strategies exists in other communication systems, right? Even though we do know that other species tie units together to longer strings. And to me, it sounds like these strategies are really would be really useful at, to scaffold a syntactic system to build upon. So from these three little examples that I showed you, almost by accident, we have gained a hierarchy of a linguistic system that is highly productive. And each system builds on capacities that were already there. So we go from one unit grammars to two, to linear grammars, simple phrase grammars I haven't had time to talk about. We propose some other steps. And at the end, at the top of the ladder, right, we get a system that looks like what we call a language. But of course, the whole ladder is language, right? Like all of this is a communicative system. What this indicates, if this is a model that we can work with, is not in evolutionary terms, we don't need a great leap forward, but it's a plausible gradual development that builds on many different cognitive capacities that we find in other species too. And we find traces of these more foundational mechanisms in modern complex systems. It is a hierarchy of formal languages. It's a formalization. But it's not um, one of those context-free Chomsky grammars that you might be familiar with. But it's a hierarchy that really maps meanings to sounds in sophisticated ways. And there are actually systems that seem to show that our model here is not completely on the wrong track. Because if you look at emerging village sign languages, for instance, you will see, um, so those are systems that evolve in communities where there is some hereditary deafness over generations in families. The generations of speakers that develop these systems seem to follow the rungs of our ladders in a remarkably stable way across languages. So first-generation signers usually start out with one-unit grammars, with a small amount of two-unit um, grammars. Then older second-generation grammars, they will start to develop a linear grammar with no or little prosody. Um, and then, you know, you see how 
each generation builds on top until you get to fairly sophisticated systems. So in conclusion, I would argue that there is, contrary to what's widely accepted, in, at least in my corner of the literature, there is not a lot of evidence for a great leap forward in human language evolution. Um, and the systems that were useful for non-human animal communications were, of course, or are, of course, useful also for hominids. This um, system relies on ordinary non-linguistic ingredients, so social cognition, memory I mentioned, we can talk about other things. Um, and they enable interpretative strategies as possible precursors to syntax. And I think what's crucial, maybe more for the linguists than for everyone else, but I, we had a short discussion about FOXP2, I think so, so I think it's actually interesting for all of us, is that the ability to combine symbols is only one ingredient in the system, right? It is, it is a useful one, but it's really not the only one. It might not be what makes human language language. Now, we've seen also that modern language has traces. It's kind of like, a, you know, the genetics people, they, they also find traces from other things, so I'm, I almost feel like a real scientist finding traces of, of like, these earlier steps, uh, and these earlier steps are not replaced, but they're just elaborated upon. So our complexity hierarchy, we, see, we like to see it as a set of formal tools to analyze the range of expressive possibilities in many species. Um, the systems that we developed can use all or, or just a subset of cognitive markers for language, so organisms can draw on the full range or less. So, you know, the fact that you think, like the poet Robert Duncan, that your cat is talking to you may just mean that your cat is on a different rung on our ladder, right? Like a little bit like Pocket suggested 60 years ago. But it means that, of course, your cat has language, right? And so do dolphins and bees. Because our model is well-suited to formalize other models of communication. In particular, we can analyze animal communication as located points located at points along this continuum of formal systems. So we don't need to draw a sharp distinction between this species has language, this species doesn't have language, and the hierarchy offers a continuum of possibilities to actually compare species to each other. And I think what is also nice about it is that we can gain a new approach and a new perspective on the question how did humans evolve so as to be able to learn language once we have a, a, a more fine-grained understanding of what, how we think about language? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.